0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
2: featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables everyone much. has a story in the district I've of wonders come and find yours your transmissions
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 470. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a fun packed show, so I'm going to get straight into it. Tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, our very own Jeremy, Jeremy Sal, is interviewing Rob Bufford, who is a science fiction writer, author of Tracer. Zero G and Impact. Jeremy has an exclusive interview with Rob. Then we have, I'm going to put in the main fiction. It is Solomon's Little Sister by J. O'Connell, originally published in Asimov's magazine. Then right at the end, (laughs) last but by no means least, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his January Science News. That is all coming in the day's show. So it is, it's a fun-packed show, and like you see, I want to just jump straight in. So hand you over to Jeremy, who's got a great interview with Rob Boffard. Ladies and
0: gentlemen, welcome back to Starship Sofa's Interviews. I am Jeremy Zal, the fiction editor here at Starship Sofa. It's been quite a while since I did one of these interviews, and we just felt I just felt that the time was bright for me to get back into it. So, we've got quite a treat for you today. I'm interviewing Rob Bafford, who is a South African author who splits his time between London, Vancouver, and Johannesburg. And he's worked for a journalist in over a decade and has written articles for publications in more than a dozen countries. But what you guys are interested in is his novels, uh, his fiction, which the first of which is Tracer from Orbit Books, which is essentially the born identity meets gravity, but in space. And it's awesome. It is really, really awesome. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And I thought you guys would be interested as well. He's got three books, three more books at the moment coming out from Orbit, uh, Tracer, Impact and Zero-G. And yeah, if you guys have read them and I hope you guys enjoy this interview, if you haven't, please either hopefully after this interview you will. So let's let's go straight to our interview. All right, Rob, uh, really good to have you here at Starship Sofa. Really pleasure to finally talk to you again.
4: It's great to be here, man. I I love the show. Thank you for having me.
0: Not at all. So for those of you listening who aren't aware of your books, how would you summarize them in a sentence or two?
4: I write uh, explosive action sci-fi that never lets up from the very first page. I've got three books out right now set in the same universe, and there are a lot more on the way. All
0: right. Excellent. So that actually leads into the next question I was about to ask you. So, Tracer, the first novel, it's incredibly fast-paced, like you said, and barely lets up for a second. And in a genre that's so saturated with long info dumps and world-building, uh, what's your secret to keeping it sharp and simple?
4: Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you found it as, as fast-paced as I did when I, when I was writing it. Um, I think it, it, to call it a secret uh, is, is maybe the wrong word. I mean, yeah, I have to kind of emphasize that Tracer was the very first book I'd written not the first, not just the first book I had published, but the very first book I had written. I was flying by the seat of my pants, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I was very lucky to to have editors at at Orbit Books who who knew what they were doing and who were able to to kind of to, to shape what I was what I was writing. But in terms of trying to trying to build the world and just keep the pace up, um, for me it was it was all about the little details. Um, it was all about going right. How can I communicate the the most information about this world in the least amount of space? Without you, know, without, you know, dropping the pace and, and bogging the reader down. So it might have been things like um, my hero is a, is, a, is a courier on a space station and she, uh, she was obviously running quite fast a lot of the time, but she's always observing her surroundings. She has to because she might have to react uh, very quickly when something pops out into her path. So it's things like highlighting the graffiti on the walls and highlighting, you know, the, the, the rust on the ceiling and the flickering lights, just giving an, an idea of, of, of what the world is like. And I'm, I'm fortunate because that's quite good fun to write as as, as well. And uh, you know, once it had been through the editorial process and once we really polished it, I think it, I think it came out quite well.
0: Yeah, I was actually just about to ask you about about that because like there was very little description as far as scene building goes, but I still got a clear sense of I got still got a clear sense of what where I was and what was going on. How much did you have to edit out? Like, did you have to cut stuff out just to keep the pace going, or was it pretty simple?
4: total opposite actually. And I think I'm the only, I I think I'm the only writer that has ever been in the situation. My first drafts are always too short. My, you know, the editors will come back and say, this is great. Please make it, you know, 20,000 or 30,000 words longer. So, you know, cutting stuff is easy. I can do that all day. It's, it's, it's the adding stuff that is tricky. Am I, so my first drafts tend to tend to be quite sparse, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're pretty much the only author that I've ever talked to or known who's had that problem. Like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So Tracer has three point of view characters. Uh, Two of them are in third person. But Riley Hale, the protagonist, has a first person perspective. Is there any reason why you did this?
4: I wrote the the very first draft was just Riley. It was just the first person. And one of the, the best suggestions that Orbit gave me were, look, add some additional perspectives. And they didn't give me any guidelines to do it. They didn't say do the perspectives in first person or third person. But when I started writing them, it's what I naturally gravitated towards. And it, it felt, I mean, I, before I'd, um, shortly before I'd written Tracer, I read a book uh, by a crime author called Linwood Barkley, where he does the same thing. The main characters in first person and the additional perspectives are in third. And that worked quite well. I fell into that quite naturally. Um, you know, at one point I thought, well, should I make it all third person, including uh, Riley's perspective? And it just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. It just felt weird. There was too much of me in Riley to make it third person, whereas I was able to look at, um, the other two perspectives, uh, so from Prakash Kumar and R. Darnell, I was able to look at them a little bit more objectively. Um, but again, I think I think it turned out it turned out really well. It was it was something again I had no experience of doing. I didn't really know what the correct way to do it was, if such a thing exists. Uh, but I'm really happy with how it turned out.
0: Yeah, I remember reading a book by Linwood Barclay actually called uh, No Time for Goodbyes, I believe. And yeah, I'm not sure if that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, the main protagonist. Uh, he's not actually the protagonist. It's the protagonist's husband, and the uh, the story is told from the husband's p- perspective and in first person. But the world is really about uh, the secondary character, and it jumps back and forth. And like, there's a lot of people out there who will tell you that there's no such thing as multiple first uh, POVs or first person point of views. But really, if it works at the end of the day, then you've done a good job. And I and I felt it worked, and apparently the editors did as well. And
4: Cool, man. And, uh, but yeah, this is this is this is the thing. There aren't any rules with this stuff. This is why I get so annoyed when you know I, I see people posting up like the top ten rules for your first draft and ten, you know, twenty bits of writing advice. I'm like, guys, there's no right or wrong way to do this. You do you you do what works for you, and you do what you think is is going to to hook the reader in. If it's hell, if it's if it's twenty different perspectives, all of them second person. That's cool. You know, do you?
0: Yeah. Uh, if anyone can pull that off and do it all well, I'd like to see that, but I'll withhold judgment until I do. All right. and <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough, yeah. And you said that you saw a lot of yourself in Riley, and what was it like? Uh, I hate that I have to ask this, but I might as well. What was it like writing from a female POV?
4: It's an interesting question. Um, I never, I think what saved it in the end was I never stopped to think, wait, hang on, how would a woman approach this? I wanted, I, I wanted to make Riley a compelling character, before I made her a compelling woman, if that makes sense to me, it was just well, how would she re- how would she react to this as a person, gender aside? You know, it, making Riley a man would have betrayed her as a character. I I, I kind of when I write when I when I think if I think up a new character, they arrive more or less fully formed in my head. I mean, obviously, I don't know how they're going to develop, but I know who they are at that point. And it it, it always feels like a, a betrayal to to change you know fundamental aspects about them. So Riley came to me as a woman, as a 20-year-old woman, and really it was up to me to deal with that. And the way I dealt with that was just by going, well, I'm just going to write her like I would write anybody. And if there are scenarios that pop up which are unique to her as a woman, I will try and deal with that to the best of my ability. But I'm absolutely not going to change it. I'm going to I'm going to see if I can rise to the challenge.
0: Alright, excellent. Because at the end of the day, empathy and uh, characterization is really goes far beyond the identity of of the author or that of the character. If you're writing a, you write a character before you write a uh, woman, I suppose that's one way of doing it. All right. Yeah, exactly.
4: Because, because you don't, sorry, man, you don't know who the reader is. You don't know who's going to be reading your work. Once it's out there, you, you have no control and you can't, You can't kind of take into account how different people view the world you've just got to do the best job you can of writing a character that you care about and that you think other people might care about beyond beyond that you can't do anything
0: yeah all right so over your youtube channel which is fantastic by the way you've spoken out against short fiction markets and feel that they're built in a tremendously shaky ground can you talk about that a little bit
4: yes absolutely um one of the things, well, there were quite a few things that annoyed me about short fiction. And, but, you know, when I was thinking about making the particular video you're referring to, I was kind of looking at this and going, "We, you know, short fiction is so revered in, science, in the science fiction and fantasy landscape, but I don't understand why. Who's reading this stuff? And because I've got a journalism background, I thought, well, let's go and, and look at the numbers. And what I saw in the numbers made me go, wait, these guys, you know, their circulation figures and their subscription figures are terrible. And the way that they treat their writers is terrible. And as someone who's, who's worked as a freelance journalist for, for nearly a decade now and who has kind of constantly fought to, to try and sell my stuff in a professional environment, I mean, and not just fiction here, I'm talking about uh, nonfiction as well, journalism, it, it irritates me when a publication puts restrictions on how they wish, they wish their, you know, their, their pictures and their stories to be submitted. And something like um, no simultaneous submissions, to me, there is absolutely no reason for that. That essentially is a big red flag from the start that we don't trust you as a writer to treat us fairly. We think you're just going to uh, take your story and sell it everywhere and you're not going to communicate with us. I mean, I don't want to, I would never want to deal with anybody who does that. that, that, that that's crazy to me. And, uh, you know, once I, I latch on to something, I, I do tend to get quite angry about it and whirl myself into a bit of a tornado of contempt. Uh, and I think I, I did that with this. I got a real bee in my bonnet and I went, well, Okay. I, I enjoy making videos now It's something I've had a lot of fun doing uh, So let's see if I can do a bit of a rant About short fiction I think it struck a chord with quite a few people I've had um, several people Including um, quite a few short fiction editors Come to me and say Yeah, you've you've absolutely nailed it And it, 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 it surprised me that the editors were coming to me I thought I'd get a lot of opposition from them But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, this is obviously a problem That not only I have noticed And uh, I'm pleased that it struck a chord
0: yeah Yeah, like, it's some of the, like, um, because even not to call any markets out, but I have friends at the moment who have got a submission at Tor.com for the short fiction markets, and they have not, they've had their stories been held for two years now, and they've not received a rejection, and some people have had a rejection after two years, and it's just been a, sorry, that's not for us, and you can't submit it anywhere else, they've got a lockdown on your story for two years, which is, says, it says it all, I don't need to say any, I don't think we need to say any more about that. And while, yeah, we're on the, yeah, and while we're on the topic of tearing things down, uh, you've also said that you want Nanoramo to die in a fire. Any reason why you don't like Nanoramo by any chance?
4: It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Okay. It's like, you know, you don't, the, the example I always use, I'm a basketball fan, and mm-hmm. you don't go play a month of pickup basketball and then expect at the end that you're going to be the starting point guard for the Chicago Bulls if you want to be a writer, if you want to actually get your stuff published, I mean, doing it for fun is one thing, whatever. If you're just like, yeah, I'm just gonna, you know, dick around and write something for myself one month a year, whatever, cool. But if you're doing it to actually get it published and you're only doing it one month a year, get out of here, man. Take take that somewhere else. Like, this is not something you can be good at um, just by doing one month a year. And I think to think that you can, that's an insult to the thousands of writers who work very hard on their craft every day and who put in the real hours and the real sweat because it does take a huge amount of time and i mean if you use nanoremo to kickstart your writing habit or if you you know if, if it's something you do in addition to writing the rest of the year then fine whatever but it's evolved into this thing where everybody gets really excited for a month and then does nothing else for 11 months and that it i feel insulted by that i'm like that is that is that is complete nonsense how can you possibly think that that's the way to approach this and um Again, I've I, I got a, a beer in my bonnet about it. I tend to get a beer in my bonnet about this damn thing every year, which is why November is my least favorite month. Um, but uh, yeah, this year I just made that video about it. And again, I was, I, I was really happy with the responses I got.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So actually, moving away from things that piss you off, um, have you got any other future projects coming up that you'd like to talk about?
4: The answer is, yeah, I've got loads of projects coming up. I can't talk about them at the moment because we're currently in uh, contract negotiations with the publisher. Um, we're dealing with offers and stuff. And, uh, you know, also, they, you know, they're not in the finished stage yet. Um, a couple of them are in first draft stage. A couple of them have gone a little way beyond that. And I'm a bit superstitious. I don't like to really talk about something until it's done. Um, but the answer is, yeah, there are going to be many, many more books from me coming in the next two three four five years and i've got some really really cool stuff like the outer earth series was amazing i've had a blast doing it um i'm done with that universe for the time being but that's okay because i've got a dozen other universes that um i can't wait to go exploring in. and i think uh you know anybody who's familiar with my stuff is is going to be really excited to, to see what's coming next too all
0: right excellent um We've got a bit of extra time, so I'll probably just ask you: Is so the Outer Earth series and pretty much everything you've done has been science fiction. Uh, are you going to stoop into fantasy or horror in any time in in the near future by any chance? What makes you think I
4: haven't already? I mean, I, I I've said I I couldn't I can't I don't really want to discuss the projects, but I can say that at least one of them is is fantasy, um, not traditional swords and sorcery fantasy, but definitely in, the, in that vein. As for horror. I mean yeah when i first started out writing fiction a lot of it was horror i'm I'm one of the biggest stephen king fans in in the world i think doing you know a horror novel and doing it well is extremely hard to do i'm not sure i'd want to experiment with that just yet but i'm certainly not ruling it out i'd love to to write a a horror novel one day but uh, i mean i still read huge amounts of it i'm a massive fan
0: Yeah. yeah yeah like going back to one of your earlier points about short fiction uh, I've heard a lot of editors and novelists actually say that one of the best places you can find a horror story is in the shorter department, than that horror's in absolute intensity requires uh, requ- it requires that shortness, and it's incredibly difficult to stretch it out to a novel. So, yeah, it'd be pretty interesting to see what what the future holds for us in terms of where that genre goes. But yeah, thanks. But we've we'll probably run out of time, so thank you very much, Rob Baffert, for coming on the show, and... For the for those of you listening, please do pick up the Adara series from Orbit Books. They're fantastic. You've got my uh you've got my vote on that, and please do do let us know. We'll see if you can boost Rob's career a little bit.
4: <laughs> every every career in the world needs a boost. But uh, thank you for having me on the show, man. It's been a blast talking
0: to you. Right, Norris. No thank you very much.
3: There you go. Jeremy's put some links on the show so you can go over there and get yourself Tracer. Get any impact, get them all. I have got myself Tracer. There you go. Do the same.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
3: Next up is the main fiction legacy. It is Solomon's Little Sister by J. O'Connell. And what I mentioned before, originally published in Asimov's. J. O'Connell is a writer, artist, activist, living in Cambridge, Massachusetts with his wife, two kids, two cats, and eight zillion books. A graduate of Clarion West in the 90s, Jay quit writing, oh get this, Jay quit writing for no earthly reason for over a decade but returned in 2012 with a bunch of shorts and novellas in Asimov, fantasy and science fiction in his own analogue fulfilling a lifelong dream. He blogs about his social media addiction and writing at com, Dreaming his life away, waiting for the singularity. Are we all doing that there, dear? We're all there. Or something equally entertaining. He thanks profusely his wife and writing workshop griffins for all their support. And get this, man, get this. This story is narrated by Ralph Ambrose. Ralph Ambrose is a writer of science fiction, fantasy, and director of web services at Loma Linda. University Health. He is also the assistant fiction editor and sometimes narrator of Starship Sofa. Yes! Rope Ralph in. And Ralph has a cheeky little voice. Yes! Lovely. He occasionally blogs that. And I kind of pronounce that Ralph there, so I'm just putting a link onto it. It's, uh, it's lovely to have him on board. He spent his early childhood, much like his main character of this story, spends his days watching reruns of old TV shows like Hulk's Heroes, Hogan's Heroes, should I say he even met a member of the cast, Howard Kane, and sang folk songs with him in a Hoodanani in Santa Monica, California. Since then, he's learned to speak Spanish and Tagalog, studied Aikido and anthropology, and has moved into an owl preserve in Southern California. Actually, I'm sure I've seen from Ralph's pictures on maybe Facebook or something, a lovely place where he's living. Very nice. Yes. So, enough of that. The Starship Sova is, very proud present...
5: Solomon's Little Sister by J. O'Connell Your sister is at the door, House said. How does she look? Upset. Of course. Let her in. Jean was in character, wearing the sixties, the late sixties, tie-dye t-shirt, a faded denim miniskirt, beat-up moccasins, the works. Her pale green eyes skewered me through round, wire-rimmed lenses. She flipped a yard of dirty blonde hair back over one shoulder, hands on her hips. "I left, Peter,' she said. Peter had been a good friend of mine before he'd married my sister, back in the before. We'd become brothers-in-law and somehow stopped being friends. Still, he'd called me, looking for his wife." He was two-timing me. Did you know? She narrowed her eyes. Of course not, I lied. I carried her backpack into the family room. It was an absurdly large thing topped with a paisley sleeping roll. It didn't weigh nearly enough. Null grab in the aluminum tube frame? Jean flung herself into the leather couch across from the fireplace. She frowned at my video wall. What the hell are you watching? The show had frozen when I answered the door. On screen, a cute woman in a nun's habit was superimposed, badly, on a clear blue sky. I winced. Old program from the before. The Flying Nun. One of my clients loves old TV. My mother the car, my favorite Martian, Hogan's Heroes. I sort of remember that one. A comedy set in a Nazi concentration camp. Ugh. She took a good look around the room then. The beat-up, period furniture, the static prints on the walls, the light slowly dawning in her eyes. She stared up at a pair of Klee drawings on the other side of the fireplace. The poet and his wife. This is the house we grew up in, I nodded. She'd never visited... What's it like living here alone? Wonderful. She shook her head. That was enough about me. Aren't you curious, she said, about Peter. I thought you guys were doing Woodstock together. I wondered how many Woodstocks she'd done. I didn't think people were monogamous at Woodstock. Of course we aren't. It's an acid mud orgy. Then what's the problem? two-timing. He's living parallel, so he can be with Monica and me at the same time. I'd guessed something like this. My conversations with Peter had been strangely out of sync over the last few years. Parallelism isn't popular among the working class. The surcharges were prohibitive. Leasing two bodies cost ten times more than leasing one. Leasing three, one hundred. The Zeitgeist enjoyed diversity to a degree, thank God. Monica had been Jean's maid of honor. It had always been complicated with the three of them. Doorbell rang. I don't want to see him ever. The tone of voice was familiar. She meant it. I'll tell him to go home. They could sort this out later somewhere else. Peter looked exhausted hands in the pockets of his jeans, the tattered leather bomber jacket, a recreation of one he'd worn in college. He managed his trademark half-smile. She's here, isn't she? he asked. Go home, Peter. I need to see her. I felt Jean behind me. I turned. She clutched a butcher's knife in one small white-knuckled hand. I sighed as she shoved past me. Peter didn't even take his hands out of his pockets. Oh, come on, he managed. He looked down at the knife handle protruding from his tie-dyed T-shirt. The blade was buried somewhere in or near his heart. Crimson bloomed, erasing the shirt's tearful, chaotic pattern. Very immature, he murmured. The color drained from his face. Fuck you, Peter, Jean said. She twisted the knife, which sent a jet of blood splatter across her face and chest. He fell to his knees, his eyes rolling back in his head. I lowered him to the ground. I checked his pulse. He was gone. I pulled the knife from his chest, grating against bone. I'd have to get a new one, or erase these memories. We went back to the living room. I set the dripping knife on a magazine on the coffee table. Jean was crying. She was an ugly crier. Snot, red eyes, everything. I sat on a foot rest and took her hands in mine. It's over, I said. I hoped it was. She nodded, unable to speak. I'll make tea. Tea was my answer to this kind of thing. It took a few minutes to make. It was harmless. I wouldn't have to watch her cry, which, frankly, was painful. "'Appropriate for the mid-morning, tea it was. "'Chamomile?' she nodded. "'I left her in the living room, washed the blood off my hands, "'filled a kettle with water from the tap, and set it on the burner. "'It took a minute or so for the water to boil and the kettle to sing. "'I usually enjoyed that wasted-nothing minute.' "'House whispered in my ear this time. "'It's Peter again.' House had the good sense not to chime out loud this time. I didn't enjoy driving or cities, so I'd picked a suburban place close to a spawn point, a small subdivision straight out of the seventies, split-level ranch houses with aluminum siding. I'd had mine built at the end of a cul-de-sac and the rolling hills of what had been central New York in the before. While I was trying to figure out what to say to Peter in private message, there was a pounding at the door. I turned off the burner. "'I'll get it!' I hurried from the kitchen and opened the door halfway. Peter stood looking down at his body, frowning. "'I need to talk to her,' he said. "'Later. That one didn't get more than a sentence out.' "'I have to try,' he said. He looked miserable, more miserable than the body at his feet. I turned to see Jean standing behind me again. This time she had a cleaver. She slipped by me— I'm not a big fan of graphic violence. I try to avoid it when I can. I took a step back as she swung the cleaver in a gleaming arc at Peter's neck. I closed my eyes. Unpleasant sounds, gurgling, splashing, a falling body. Leave me alone, Jean sobbed. I opened my eyes. The porch was a mess. Peter's second body slumped over his first. You have to say that before you kill him, I said gently. Remote backups aren't that fast or that granular. You'll have to talk to him. Let it sink in. Give him a minute. Let the memory sink. Then you can kill him. Otherwise, he's going to keep coming. Jean shook her head. The bodies. He can see the bodies. She had a point. He would see the bodies. (sighs) "'Do you want to talk?' "'I can listen. "'It's my job.' "'I'm not your client,' she sneered. "'I'm not a toady. "'I'm an actress. "'You're an extra,' I snapped. You're window dressing.' "'I took a deep breath. "'It was a stupid time to have this argument. "'We'd each been given a number of choices upon revival. "'We didn't like the choices the other had made. "'We'd never liked each other's choices.' I'm going to go do some work. Let me know if you want to talk. About anything. I went back to the sofa and presumed the flying nun, trying to understand what the hell had possessed a bunch of grown-ups to make such a thing. It wasn't easy. Sometimes I wish my client were a little more neurotypical. A shareholder, Garlane was the only person I knew that had never been archived, His consciousness was continuous with the before. The zeitgeist had decided, as it had evolved during the nano-collapse, that people in debt must not be worth much. It had archived them as stable but inactive data structures, rather than let them continue to waste system resources. Thank God, in the words of Richard Feynman, there was plenty of room at the bottom in which we could be cheaply stored. Back when we bought computers, when they were like appliances instead of dissolved in our bloodstreams, remember how you never got around to throwing any of your old files away? How each new disc swallowed the older disc whole with plenty of room to spare? Garlane had brought me back. My work for him, as a professional friend, had resurrected our cycle of deadbeats, Jean and Peter included. I didn't appreciate Jean biting the hand that had resurrected her. She'd always been like that, dissatisfied with birthday and Christmas gifts, angry at the state school Mom and Dad could afford to send us to back in the day, furious at every modeling gig that turned out to be handing out snack food samples in front of a subway station. The world owed her something, and it never, ever delivered. The doorbell rang about every fifteen minutes, sometimes, he got in a sentence or two, shouted, but it always ended abruptly. This was costing a fortune. I didn't know how much extras made, but if Jean's constant demands for loans were any indication, it wasn't much. Each of those bodies cost somewhere around $10,000, ten hours of friendship if I ended up footing the bill. Ten hours of The Flying Nun, My Mother the Car, Hogan's Heroes, Cayman Rider, Thunderbirds, Flipper, The Star Wars Christmas Special. At some point, he'd max out his credit and stop coming, archived until someone paid his way out of debt storage. Around noon, I tried to put an end to it. I gently pulled the bloody cleaver from her hand as she gazed down at her latest victim. There was somewhere between twenty and thirty bodies scattered over my front lawn. She was streaked with dried blood. She'd washed her face and glasses a few times, but hadn't changed or showered. Her hair hung in long, bloody dreads. Come on, Carrie, get yourself cleaned up. I'll kill him for you this time. She looked up at me, biting her lip. You'd do that for me, sure, I lied. I waited for Peter to show up while she showered. I didn't know what I was going to say. Garlane called, and I told him I was having a family crisis. He gave me that look, the fake sympathy look, said the right things. Garlane emulated most of his humanity, what they used to call Asperger's autism back in the before. A few dozen like him had brokered the compact with the zeitgeist after the nano-collapse— Human beings smart enough for the zeitgeist to consider equals and wealthy enough for them to negotiate with. The zeitgeist was big on intellectual property rights. Jean and I sat together at the kitchen table. Doesn't matter how nice your living room is, your family room, your dining room, everyone always sits around the kitchen table. Jean had ditched the 60s and was wearing khakis and a t-shirt from her backpack. An absurdly happy bunny leered from the t-shirt with the words, It's all about me, above in neon pink type. I sipped my tea. Oolong. Okay, so Peter was cheating on you with Monica? In spirit. They swapped memory cores. Oh, I winced. Not good. Look, I don't want to set you off. But how is that worse than porn? Or mourn, I mean. Mourn, morph porn, which had been big before the discontinuity. In that last year, social media feeds were littered with explicit ads stirring you and whatever celebrity or historical figure your filter thought would amuse you. Friends told me they'd seen themselves bonking Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, Gandhi, Einstein... Nobody ever admitted clicking on the things, but they were making money. Somebody must have bought it. This isn't Morn. This is real. He is really screwing Monica, right now. You're not monogamous, though, are you? How is this different from your, uh, other performances? It just is, I nodded. I did understand, was the thing. "'We just got our license,' she said quietly, looking at her feet. "'For a child. Eight months ago.' "'Oh,' I said. "'We were out of our minds with joy. "'I thought we were, at first. "'But something didn't feel right. "'I drone-tailed him to a coffee shop, "'saw the two Peters together. "'They made chit-chat, exchanged memory cores.' I followed the other one home, someplace that looked like the 50s. He kissed her at the front door. I found the memory cores in his underwear drawer. He remembers her. Were you pregnant? Are you pregnant? I don't want to talk about it, she said. So we didn't. I made us some food a pair of Hungry Man TV dinners in the foil tin, which takes an hour to heat up properly in the gas oven. They're not done until the mashed potatoes look all melted and fused. Afterward, we drank Jack Daniels and listened to some vinyl, prog rock from the before. I didn't think she'd be drinking if she was pregnant. Of course, she could always have archived the pregnancy. She didn't say a word for half an hour or so. I missed the before. I shrugged. I felt the same way most of the time. But coming from her, it sounded pathetic. You're romanticizing. You were a college dropout. Your plays were flops. You were waiting tables at the end, bumming money off Mom and Dad. The booze was getting me down. I didn't drink, but somehow it had seemed the thing to do. We got old enough to know. We were never going to change the world. Then the world changed. Yeah. I miss Mom and Dad. I didn't bring up the fact that they always fought. I just nodded. The emerging zeitgeist hadn't archived San Francisco. There had been factions in the beginning who had disagreed about our absolute worth. I miss people. A world with just people. The world where people were on top. We were never on top, says... She nodded. We didn't speak for a long time. The vinyl spun, and the lamb lied down on Broadway. Why? she asked. Why what? Why did he mess us up? Men make mistakes, I said, deftly controlling the urge to mention the times she'd been on the other side of this kind of thing. Jean's relationships never ended well. Actually, now that i thought about it, nobody's relationships ended well. Even the ones that didn't end seemed scary to me half the time. You could try changing teams. Become gay? If you're sick of men, yeah. She made a face. Using a mod? I'm not talking about willpower. Jeez. You're a man. Would you do that? What Peter did? "'I shrugged. "'I did things when I was younger and the before. "'Young people are all half crazy. "'We'd both been middle-aged at the discontinuity. "'Everybody was young now and body, "'but somehow it wasn't really like being young again. "'You knew too much.' "'Jean shoved her tea away, slopping it over the table. "'I sighed, getting up to get a sponge.' It takes two people to screw up a relationship, you know. It's never just one person. Have you considered? I turned, sponge in hand. Jean, her face, a mask of fury, swung the cleaver at my face. Couples therapy? I closed my eyes. I don't like violence, especially when it's directed at me. I blinked, suddenly sober, in the assembler booth at the spawn point. My interface, the discrete row of icons, and my peripheral vision, which I generally had set to auto-hide, indicated I'd just deleted two minutes of short-term memory. I'd never been murdered, after the discontinuity anyway. Never played war games. Never done immersive theater. I was wearing that disposable orange thing, the one that looks like a prison jumper. I punched a new set of clothes into the nanomat, changed to the restroom, and headed home I ambled from streetlight to streetlight through the summer night in no hurry to get back to the drama. A sports car blew past, blaring dance music I didn't recognize. Dance music pretty much all sounded the same to me, over a century of it. I'd always loved walking. Hadn't even gotten a driver's license until I was thirty. It made dating difficult before I'd moved to the city. I picked my way through the bodies littering the lawn... I'd take care of them in the morning. Your sister is asleep in the guest room, House said. I could call the police. You could use security video to get a restraining order. Thanks, but no. I could lock her in her room, House said. No, I said. I showered and made myself a pony sandwich with mayo and yellow mustard to settle that just nano-assembled roiling in the guts feeling. "'House whispered in my ear. "'There's a woman to see you,' it said. "'Who?' "'She refused to identify herself. "'Her face is not on file. "'She is entirely organic and unarmed.' "'The woman at the door was familiar. "'Short, brown hair, tall, lean. "'It was the bomber jacket that really gave him away. "'Her, I mean. "'Is she here?' Peter's female voice reminded me of middle school. Light, clear, worried. I blinked at her. Peter's conversion looked like a default MTF. Shoulders slighter, hands smaller, no Adam's apple. The clone body extrapolated from his X chromosome without any cosmetic tweaks. Her nose was too big. She wore no makeup. Her eyebrows grew together. Still... She was cute. Peter had always been the most attractive one of the group, the first who dated in high school, the one juggling girlfriends in college. She's asleep, I said. She looked at her body scattered throughout the yard. Give me a hand with this, will you? She grunted and grabbed a body by the hands. I took the feet. We carried them, one by one, to the disassembler, disguised as a composter in accordance with historical zoning regulations, and fed them in, I slipped in blood twice, ruining my pajamas. The changing team's idea isn't going to fly, I said. No. She killed me after I suggested it. She could be the man, then, Peter said. I could tell from his tone of voice even he didn't think that was going to work. You were the man, Peter. Now you're the ex. She started crying. Not a woman thing, but a Peter thing. Peter cried easily, welled up at romantic movies. Jean had loved that about him. I patted her back awkwardly. We'll talk about it in the morning. Unless she kills you again, in which case I'm putting out a restraining order and you'll be trapped at the spawn point. This has to stop. I put Peter to bed on the fold-out sofa in my study, a disused room crammed with books I hadn't looked at in years. I told House to keep Jean in her room until I'd spoken with her. I was asleep before my head hit the pillow. It was one of those dreams, the ones we all have, the ones we don't talk about. I stood at the top of a sparsely wooded hill in my pajamas in a strange pre-dawn light, The girl standing in the grass looked a little like Jean, but more like the female version of Peter. Brown, pixie-cut hair, and crazy big, dark, serious eyes. She wore a short white skirt with pink leggings covered with animated, anthropomorphized ponies. I realized we were in Thorndon Park, overlooking the university we'd all attended and the city beyond. We stood beside the graffiti-encrusted brick water tower, "'looking out over the campus. "'The swelling dome of the Nanocalypse "'refracted the sunrise into sickly rainbow gradients "'as it crept toward us from the east, "'devouring the horizon. "'The sky looked like an acid trip, a bad one. "'The girl smiled up at me. "'You're not finished,' she said. "'I knew exactly what she meant in the dream. "'Afterwards I was unsure if she was talking about me personally.' The human race, both, or something else entirely. We're not done with you. I shivered. There were two of them now, identical twins, holding hands. The ponies leapt from leg to leg, girl to girl. You're not done with us. The nanocalypse washed over the city, the buildings dissolving into cubic gridwork skeletons. The wave crept up the hill toward the campus, disintegrating, compacting, ordering, archiving. Is this the past or the future? I asked. The girl on the left laughed. Silly. It's always now. Her twin said. They always ask the wrong questions. The first girl reached for my hand while hooking a finger at me and I squatted. She whispered in my ear. "'But we love you anyway.' "'We had coffee and cinnamon Pop-Tarts "'at the kitchen table the next morning. "'The coffee was automatic drip "'from an aluminum can "'made in a genuine antique Mr. Coffee Machine. "'I'd locked the knives in a liquor cabinet "'before letting Jean out of her room. "'Peter apologized. "'Jean didn't. "'Peter asked what could he do to make it right.' Jean was silent for a long time. I need you to be a person who didn't fuck Monica. I'll back out the memories, Peter said. He thumped his chest. I never touched her. I need you to be a person who didn't want to fuck her. Silence fell thickly between them. How do I do that? Peter asked. You can't, Jean said. What about the baby? I don't know, Jean said. You don't have to carry her, Peter said. I'll take her. I want us to be a family. But if you can't be with me, let me have her, please. Suddenly Peter's gender change made more sense. Jean balled her fists. She's mine. She's half yours, Peter corrected. Jean's eyes flicked to the empty knife rack. Then they both looked at me. "'I'll do some research,' I said. "'I'll let you know what your options are.' We finished our Pop-Tarts in silence. I took both of their credit keys and made them assign me power of attorney before I did anything. Custody disputes over archived children were mediated through the zeitgeist itself, not the old family court system." There seemed to be no clear precedence, or rather, there was no pattern I could discern in the judgments. Some children stayed archived, some joint custody was awarded, sometimes sole custody, sometimes. I went for a walk with Peter. Most of my neighbors were part of a lawn culture group. They spent a lot of time planting, mowing, weeding, mulching, spraying, that sort of thing. We walked in the street, changing sides to avoid the spatter of spinning sprinklers. We waved at people without stopping to say hello. I didn't really know any of them. Just like the 70s. I'm reimbursing you for the bodies, I said. You don't have to do that. Yes, I do. You're going to need the money if you're serious about a child. You're serious about that, right? She nodded. Here's the thing. It's going to cost. The Zeitgeist approved your custody rights, with a parallel surcharge. Surcharge? Congratulations, I said. You'll be the proud second single mother of the world's most expensive identical twins. If you want. It's up to you. I handed him the printed copy of the restraining order, the birth license, and parenting plan. Peter would not be allowed at the birth. He could pick up his copy of his daughter at any spawn point, any time during the first week of life. If he didn't, all his parental rights were terminated. He licked his lips at the financial statement. I won't be able to. You can have your daughter, or the double life, but not both, she nodded. Makes sense, she said. Jean emerged from the spawn booth, hugely pregnant, with a strange, sad little smile on her face. She was going to stay with me for a while, a few weeks, a decade. We hadn't worked out the details. Garlane had always been interested in kid stuff. He was excited about the cartoons we'd watched together in a few years, the video games. He had a strange fascination with the Teletubbies. The walk home took a long time. Gene moved pretty slowly. We'll probably end up having to get a car.
3: There you go. Copyright that oh, What a start! That's brilliant. That and to walk away from it, but then to, you know to come back ten years later and get into them places, man, man. I like to sit down and have a drink with you and find out how that all went and all rolled out. That was just fantastic. Jay, thank you so much. And Ralph, man, you little dark horse, eh? Wow, where to go? Thank you so much. Next up is it's Mr. JJ Caminella with his science news for January. Jim, sir.
6: Greetings and Neurolithic tessellations, my resoundingly novel angular listeners. And welcome to this January 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this appallingly indiscriminate science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Happy New Year to you, one and all. May this be the biggest and bestest New Year that ever there was. Let's start out with an older story. I meant to tell you about, well, way back. Way back last April, actually. Alright, sorry, I... Missed it, among all the other stuff. That happens. Still an interesting one. A doctoral candidate at the University of California, uh, Myai Lei Tai, yes, she's not a PhD yet, discovered something interesting in her thesis work. Her findings were published last April 25th, 2016 in the American Chemical Society's Energy Letters. So, what did she find? Well, it appears that she may have accidentally invented a nanowire-based battery capable of lasting 400 times longer than any of the best-performing batteries currently on the market. See, most batteries use lithium to carry and hold electric charges, and you guys all have lithium-ion batteries. However, there's a major downfall with lithium-ion batteries. Every time the battery gets charged and discharged, the lithium inside the battery corrodes a little bit more, causing the lithium to become more brittle and to crack, and it makes the battery more unstable and unusable after just a couple years. Additionally, as the battery ages and the lithium corrodes more, it discharges faster, it doesn't hold a charge for as long a period, and so it becomes fairly useless. Translation. Even if your iPhone has 64 gigs and works perfectly, you need to buy a new iPhone after three years or so because Apple does not make the battery replaceable, and so we all lose out. At any rate, researchers have been trying for a while to employ nanowires instead of lithium to make batteries. Nanowires are extremely delicate wires, thousands of times thinner than a human hair, and they have basically the ideal characteristics for use in batteries. They're very conductable. They have a very high surface area that can help the movement and storage of electrons. Nevertheless, these little tiny filaments of nanowires are extremely fragile, so they don't hold up very well to continuous charging and discharging. Apparently, Ms. Tai has stumbled upon a solution by coating gold nanowires with a manganese dioxide shell and suspending it in an electrolyte, plexiglass-like gel. The new setup keeps the properties of the nanowires in place, and the wires uh, don't fracture through use over and over again. Ty tested the charging capacity of the electrode nearly 200,000 times over a three-month period. She found the system to be extremely resilient and resistant to failure, with none of the nanowires fracturing. She says, quote, I was just playing around. I coated this whole thing with a very thin gel layer and started to cycle it. I discovered that just by using this gel, we could cycle it hundreds of thousands of times without losing any capacity. Unquote. The surprising part is that the researchers still aren't exactly sure how their newly developed technology works. Tai said, quote, We started to cycle the devices, and then we realized the batteries weren't going to die. We were incredibly excited, but we don't have any idea how the mechanism works yet. Unquote. This sounds great, doesn't it? But there's always a catch, isn't there? What's the catch here? Well, since Ty's batteries were made using gold, they would be very expensive to purchase for an iPhone or anything else for that matter. So Ty and her doctoral advisor are already trying the same experiment using nickel instead of gold to see whether they can generate similar results. Even so, this is a serious breakthrough. In every interview I've read, Ty seems to be grateful with her find. And presumably not just because it pretty much guarantees her a doctorate and an academic job anywhere she likes. Sorry, my cynical side is showing through. She finished the article by saying, quote, This research process proves that a nanowire based battery electrode can have a long lifetime and that we can make these kinds of batteries a reality. Unquote. Next story. Better uses for drugs than what they were originally designed for. Long-time listeners will know that my father has Alzheimer's. Yes, it has been hard on the family, and especially hard for my mother, but that is certainly not what this story is about. In the last year, my dad has been given a variety of pro-cognitive, quote unquote, anti-Alzheimer medications that have done absolutely nothing to better his mental condition. I am not in a position to say whether my dad is simply in too advanced a state to benefit, or whether, as my mother believes, the drugs are simply crap. Actually, that was my word, not my mother's. Uh, My mother was a bit more vehement on the subject and even more colorful in her native Sicilian. So I was both saddened and a bit heartened by the following story. In a study published January 9th in Scientific Reports, Dr. Paul Sharp of King's College in London found that applying tideglusib, an Alzheimer's drug, which did not help my dad, can successfully promote teeth to repair themselves, at least in mice. Sharp says, quote, Almost everyone on the planet has tooth decay at some time. It's a massive volume of people being treated. We think we could dispense with all that drilling and filling. Normally when a tooth loses dentin, that's the bony layer under the enamel, stem cells deep in their pulpy centers can help regrow that lost tissue. Normally, this mechanism is only able to repair small cavities and cracks. Using Tideglucib, we've deliberately tried to make something really simple, really quick, and really cheap, unquote. and his team conducted the study on mice, drilling holes in their little tiny teeth, and filling the cavities with a biodegradable, drug-soaked sponge. I know, I know, just thinking about that makes me uncomfortable. Shades of the crazy Nazi dentist for the 1970s movie Marathon Man. Is it safe? Ugh, sorry. Anyway. Six weeks later, they found the treatment had helped the mice regrow the lost dentin in their teeth. The researchers are now testing whether the treatment can scale up to rat teeth and ultimately human teeth. At any rate, it's nice to see that an Alzheimer's drug may actually be able to do something useful. And yes, there is more than a bit of irony in that statement. So the story on Tideglucib allows us to segue into a story that is actually related to it. Because Tideglucib was originally tested on humans in trials over a number of years and was long ago accepted into the United States FDA grouping of drugs that are safe for human use and treatment, it should actually be a relatively short time between clinical trials on human cavity treatment and marketing. If it works to help regrow human teeth, it may be marketed in the next year or two for that purpose. However, what about those drugs that are not so lucky and are still in initial clinical trials? for you Americans out there. European and British nannyism seems to be at a lower level than it is here. The FDA promised in the late 1990s to fast-track important drugs that could help in the treatment of cancers and all sorts of other horrible diseases. Did this happen? Uh, no. No, it didn't. An article this week in the journal The Scientist by Carrie Grenz suggests that it is just as bad as it ever was. U.S. federal approval for new drugs now takes, hold on to your socks, about 12 years. (laughs) Roughly the same length of time as it did in the late 1990s. Nothing has changed. So much for fast tracking. And to make things worse, because drug makers are getting fewer years of exclusivity out of their patents, that may help explain the rising price of drugs. Gren says, quote, Companies that cannot quickly push their drugs through the pipeline get a return on their investment later, creating incentive to charge more to make up for lost time. That also translates into fewer years on the market before a patent expires, which may also drive companies to charge even more to squeeze the most out of the time they have to reap big profits before the floodgates open to generic competition. Unquote. Gren's article references a report from the Quintile IMS Institute that came out the first week of January. This year, obviously. The report analyzed 667 drugs approved for sale by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration since 1996. Approvals hit a low point in 2008 with just 19 new drugs joining the market. In 1997 and in 2015, Approvals peaked at 47. Approvals dropped again in 2016, with only 22 new drugs approved. Cancer netted the biggest chunk of new medications during the past two decades, with about 18%, followed by infectious diseases, with about 14%, the Institute found. The success with cancer treatments may also influence drug prices, Grenz reported, because with a smaller market and no good alternative treatments, Pharmaceutical firms can hike their prices and pretty much do whatever they like with them. 12 years. Seriously, 12 years. Let me put that in perspective. Your newborn of this year will be in 7th grade when drugs that are just entering trial in 2017 may be approved. Or better yet, my daughter will be 11 in May. Drugs that were starting trial when she was born in 2006, are still not approved. Imagine if a new drug is found today that has a major ameliorative effect on pancreatic cancer. It will not be on the market for more than a decade. All those lives lost in between just become what? Sad statistics? This doesn't seem very acceptable to me. I know that the FDA is trying to protect our lives and health, but there has to be a better way. I mean, there simply has to be a way to fix this mess we've found ourselves in. Right now, the lives of lots of people are increasingly dependent on drugs which are still unapproved, even if they're effective. And yes, my anger does come in part from my own personal experience right now. I've read studies that demonstrate many potential effective treatments for Alzheimer's. But thanks to the FDA... None of those therapies will ever see the light of day in the U.S. in time to ever help my dad or anyone like him. Miffed, disheartened, annoyed, pissed off. A bitter much, dude. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm all those things and a lot more. Here's a quote from Murray Atkin, executive director of Quintile IMS Institute. He says, quote, I was personally surprised it still takes an average of 12 years for drugs to hit the market. We haven't seen as much progress in revolutionizing the approach to clinical development that we might have expected 20 years ago. Well, thank you, Murray, a.k.a. Captain Obvious. Since we seem to be on a roll here as kind of a theme, let's keep that up. I said I'd read several studies that were very promising in terms of Alzheimer treatment. Can I give you an example? How about this one? Dr. Ruben Couchy, senior lecturer at the University of Malta, has reported in the journal Neuroscience Letters last month that his research group may have finally found some extracts of plants that have a significant effect on Alzheimer's, at least in animal models right now. Chemicals extracted from the prickly pear and brown seaweed, two pervasive Mediterranean plants, have been elevated to possible drug candidates to combat neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Those age-related disorders are both characterized by the accumulation of sticky protein clumps that over time damage the nervous system and erode mobility and memory, as many of you know. Gauchi says, quote, We have been long screening plants scattered across the Mediterranean for small molecules that interfere with the buildup of toxic protein aggregates. The robust effects of chemicals derived from the prickly pear and brown seaweed confirm that our search has certainly not been in vain, Part of the motivation for this, Couchy implied, was that in certain regions around the Mediterranean, there are populations that have very, very low levels of Alzheimer's and they survive to very old age, without evidence of neurodegenerative breakdown. And the idea is, is perhaps it has something to do with diet. So maybe there was something out there that people were eating, and so they've been studying plants in the area with the hopes of maybe finding something. They've been using fruit flies that have brain-specific expression models of both early and late-onset Alzheimer's. And they've been supplementing the food of the fruit flies with prickly pear or brown algae extract and they found that it dramatically ameliorates the lifespan and the behavioral signs of the flies with these model problems. Additionally, they demonstrated that either extract prolonged the survival of a fruit fly model based on the transgenic expression of human alpha-synuclein, which creates the protein class in the brain that caused Parkinson's disease. Regular treatment with the seaweed extract extended the median lifespan of the diseased flies by two days. And a greater four-day extension was observed when prickly pear extract was administered. Now, you hear two days and four days, and that doesn't really seem like very much. But one of the things you have to consider is that one day in the life of a fruit fly is roughly equivalent to about a year in humans. So those results are pretty dramatic. The investigators also discovered that the extracted substances prolong the lifespan of flies with brains overloaded with that alpha-synuclein protein. It's a gummy protein that's associated with Parkinson's. And the effect of that gummy brain protein in a neurodegenerative mechanism is something that's shared by both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So at least in flies, the research team found that the plant-derived molecules interfered with the buildup of both beta-amyloid and that alpha-synuclein, their ability to generate clumps, which ultimately makes them toxic to neurons. cauchy finishes with, quote, We believe that the discovery of bioactive agents that target pathways that are hit by multiple neurodegenerative conditions is the most viable approach in our current fight against brain disorders. A clear advantage of the drugs used in the studies is that in view of their excellent safety profile, they are already on the market as nutraceuticals and cosmeceuticals, Nutra-what? Well, a nutraceutical is a food used as a pharmaceutical. Huh. Well, let's put it this way. Because neither prickly pears nor brown algae count as drugs, the FDA will be able to do bugger all to stop doctors from using these plants as treatments. I like it these Maltese are definitely on the right track. Well, I feel like I should do at least one more story this evening, staying as far away from biology as possible and any emotional content as possible as well. How about this one? Dr. Michael Renzler of the University of Innsbruck reported in the journal Physical Review Letters at the end of December that his research group has generated the first negatively charged hydrogen ions, well, ever generated. This may not seem like a big deal, but even if you've just taken basic high school chemistry, you'll understand that this is a complicated thing and an important one. Hydrogen is the simplest of all the elements. It's made up of one proton in the nucleus with a single electron going around it. And the proton has a positive charge and the electron has a negative charge. So under most conditions, hydrogen is a neutral molecule because the two charges just cancel each other out, positive and negative. If the electron is lost by being knocked out of orbit, you have a barren proton for your hydrogen, and that is positively charged. So how is it possible to get negatively charged hydrogens? Well, Rensselaer infused tiny droplets of liquid helium with hydrogen gas. Then his team bombarded the droplets with a beam of electrons, which converted some hydrogen molecules into negatively charged hydrogen ions. Neighboring hydrogen ions, two bond hydrogen ions, clustered around the ion in groups of a few molecules to over 60. Rensselaer also determined the geometric structures of the clusters, Hydrogen molecules organized into shells that surrounded the central ion. Clusters were the most stable and most common when molecules filled their shells to their capacity. In the first shell, for example, the cluster formed is an icosahedron, a 3D shape with 12 vertices. And that was when 12 molecules filled the shell. This is very cool. I've seen Rensselaer's 3D models. So are you going to come across these hydrogen ions in your garden, the Antarctic? the Amazon? No. The one thing to remember is that because all of this only occurs at near absolute zero, it will never occur naturally on Earth outside of a laboratory. However, in space, those negatively charged hydrogen cluster ions might form naturally in cold dense clouds of hydrogen or in the atmospheres of gas giant planets. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Eat that prickly pear jelly if you want to keep your mind sharp. Petition the FDA to get their behinds in gear. Keep brushing your teeth. It'll be a while until Tideglusib will be there to help you. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. <laughs>
3: There you go! Oh, what a show, man! Jeremy's put together this show. Round of applause for young Jeremy there. Stand up to the mic as well. That's always a nerve wracking thing. There and did that and put this show together. Jeremy and Ralph, <laughs> you know what I mean. Well, Angie as well. You know what I mean. And Rob, I just kind of sugarcoat it and act like the you know what I mean. The prima donna. Well, I really did it all. You know what I mean. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Honestly, fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for putting this show together. Just brilliant. Our music for this is Master David Bradshaw as well. I'll put a link on so you can go and see that fine man and listen to his fine tunes. Until next week, I'd just like to say goodnight from me.
2: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Yeah, much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning into your transmissions. I'm and waiting to be found, and I'm building rockets, I'm pointing them to the moon. But the work is going slowly. It won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. Far from here, and at best I move moving slow. So I'm waiting on your call at home, with nowhere to go. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through?